0: Now, uh, as soon as we're done with the Beatitudes tonight, we're going to go right into the Sermon on the Mount next week. Uh, and this is kind of the, the beginning of the, the Sermon on the Mount, though some teachers separate it, the Beatitudes, then the Sermon on the Mount. But it's all the same message. So really, the Beatitudes is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. But we're going to do the rest of it starting next week. Let me give you an idea of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And I'm getting a little bit of feedback, guys, a little echo. Um, let me give you an idea of what it's about. One time, I was traveling to India, and when I was going to India with another pastor, we were going to uh, do a missions trip, and uh, we had to do a little uh, layover in Singapore. Now, I remember uh, we were in this beautiful jet, and as we approached Singapore, that I'd never been to, never traveled like I was traveling, this was in the 80s. Some of you weren't even born. Don't tell me if that's you. I don't want to hear it all right but anyway it was in the 80s and as we approached Singapore where you could actually begin to see it out the windows the the stewardesses came up and handed us a card and on the card it told us things we could and could not do in the land of Singapore it gave us the new rules new laws new precepts new principles Can we get them some light over here? Because they can't see their Bibles. Thank you. Sorry, I just noticed that. They're going, even young people are doing this. Okay. Let there be light. All right. Now, and, and, and it was really harsh because it said, if you do these things, you will be arrested. Let me give you an example. You could not, now not that I would have done it, I wouldn't have, but just in case, it said, you can't even spit a piece of gum onto the ground, that they'll arrest you. Well, there went my lifelong habit. No, I'm I'm kidding. So here's the deal. We were leaving one kingdom, America, and we were entering a totally different kingdom, Singapore. It was totally different. Now, here's the deal. Taxiing into Singapore, I could have decided, well, you know what, I don't like Singapore's rules, Singapore's laws, so I'm going to act like an American in Singapore. I'm just going to be an American in Singapore. Well, uh, for some people, that would have meant a jailed American in Singapore. Because when you go to a new kingdom, you must obey the laws of that kingdom. Or you're going to be miserable, you're going to be in trouble, you're going to be all messed up, and that kingdom is not going to work out for you. Now, here's what happens with a lot of believers. They get saved, and what they don't understand is they have entered a new kingdom. And they think their salvation just kind of takes care of it. Well, I'm saved now, so I I can just keep on living the way that I was or kind of viewing life the way that I did, and I'll be okay. And they start running into trouble and chastenings from God, and they don't experience the joy of the Lord like they're told they should be. Why? Because... We're not embracing the laws of the new kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. It says he preached the kingdom of God. And it says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So over and over and over, we have two things named in the Bible, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Now, listen carefully to me. The kingdom of heaven is a place The kingdom of God is a condition. Okay? Kingdom of heaven is a place we're going to go to one day. We're going to live there. We're going to walk the streets. And like I said last week, we're going to be doing things. Some of you freaked out? Thought I was telling you you were going to be working in the kingdom of heaven? I think we lost some people from the church when I said that. No, I'm kidding. Now, but here's the deal. The kingdom of God is a condition. It is where his will is done. The kingdom of God is what Christians are supposed to be walking in. When you got saved, what did the Bible say? You were translated from the kingdom of darkness into what? Say it with me. The kingdom of what? God's dear son. So we not only got saved, but we got a kingdom transfer. So you know what the Sermon on the Mount is? It's the card telling us how to live in this kingdom. It's three chapters telling us how to live in this kingdom. Giving us all the rules, all the principles, all the bylaws, everything having to do with the kingdom of God is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Everybody with me? Are you with me? That's why, listen, Jesus is not just our Savior, He's our teacher, He's our philosopher, He's our guide. He's our counselor. He came to not only redeem us, but until we're in heaven, he taught us how to live kingdom living on this earth where we are successful believers and not walking around defeated all the time. So what I'm going to do in the next few weeks is I'm going to give you the card before we land, so to speak. Okay? We're going to understand what Jesus had to say about kingdom living and you know what for somebody lost this ain't their letter this is for saved people this is how saved people are to live okay if you don't get this then you're going to be a frustrated cat let me tell you because you're going to be trying to do things from uh the kingdom of satan the way you learn to do things you're going to be trying to do the same things and live this, and think the same way and view life the same way instead of having your mind renewed. That's why it says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've got, we got to learn to think differently, right? You've got to learn to think differently or you're not going to succeed as a believer. So kingdom or, or the Sermon on the Mount is going to show us how to think differently. And the Beatitudes are just the beginning. Now, last time we saw that the Beatitudes reveal a spiritual progression. Beginning with the poor in spirit, we have a person in spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall, what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Now, beginning with the poor in spirit, we've got a person in spiritual poverty, and who also knows it. Doesn't do you any good to be poor in spirit and not know it. You've got to know it, or you're never going to go to him and say, please help me. So, this is the person without Christ who is lost. I really do believe that's why Jesus started at, at base one. He, he's starting with a person lost, poverty stricken in spirit, which is the condition of anybody who doesn't know Jesus. I don't care if you've got a billion dollars. If you don't know Jesus, you're poverty stricken in your spirit. You're poverty-stricken. You say to me, I am rich and have need of nothing. But I say unto you that you are wretched, miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus told the Laodicean uh, church that was filled with people or apparently had some people that didn't really know the Lord. He said, you say you're rich, but you're not rich. You're miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. That's not a description of anybody that knows Jesus. Jesus was nailing people sitting in church who were lost. So he starts there. Then in the second beatitude, he says, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that, to me, is so clear. He's, he's, we're going on a progression forward. This is the, the same person who says, I'm poor in spirit. I have sinned against God. And that causes them to mourn over their sin. They're convicted. And they're saying, oh, God, forgive me for breaking your heart and sinning against you. And I'm coming to you and I'm repenting. The knowledge of their spiritual condition has brought them to the place of mourning over their condition and repenting for it. And then in the third beatitude, look what we find. We see a person that is now producing spiritual fruit. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now that's describing a person that to me was mourning, then repented, and then got saved, and now they're producing spiritual fruit. Meekness. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22. Having been convicted of sin and then repented, they are now a member of the kingdom of God. So guess what? They switch kingdoms. Can you say with me tonight, I've switched kingdoms. Say with me, God took me from the kingdom of darkness. And he placed me in the kingdom of his dear son. So we're in a whole new kingdom. So now this person is a member of the kingdom of God and they're bearing the fruit of the kingdom. Meekness. In the fourth beatitude, their salvation is also evidenced by a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You show me somebody saved, and I'm going to show you somebody with a spiritual appetite. Okay? You get saved, you're going to get hungry, and th- just like a baby crying out for milk. You're going, to, you're going to experience a hungering and thirsting after the things of God. As somebody who has been born again, you want that spiritual milk. You want that milk of the word. Listen, when I got saved and I, got, and I came to the Lord with all of my heart, anytime the church was uh, opened, I was there before they unlocked the doors. You couldn't get me away. I couldn't get enough of the word. I inhaled it. I, I snorted it. I smoked it. I mean, I'm just trying to tell you. I was hungry for the word. I could not get enough. I mean, I just devoured it. Because a hunger was awakened in me when I got saved. And I I contend that one of the marks of spiritual health is spiritual hunger. If you're no longer hungry for the the things of God, you need to go figure out what's wrong. Because anybody healthy is hungry. Okay? As a child of God, they long to be like Jesus. Please the Father and long for the things of God. And then we come to the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now that's what we're going to start with this one tonight. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The word for merciful uh, means tenderhearted, compassionate. Uh, um, uh, somebody who's, who's walking in mercy or compassion when they see somebody that's hurting, somebody that has a need, they can't look at it stone faced. They can't look at it without empathy and compassion rising up within them towards the pain that person is experiencing. Blessed are the merciful. Now do you see with me that this is again a fruit of the spirit. This is a person now that's growing. First meekness, then hungering and thirsting after the things of God, then mercy, which is is what Jesus was like. It occurred to me that as you follow Jesus through the gospels, you find that Many of his miracles were preceded by his being moved with compassion. It was like compassion just greased the skids for a miracle. He was moved with compassion. For instance, Mark 6, 34. It says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things of course the king james will say mood with compassion when he saw this large crowd he didn't just see a bothersome crowd that was always following him around and didn't give him time to eat or take a break he looked at them and it says something deep inside jesus was moved and moved with compassion and you find that three-word phrase preceded some of his strongest miracles the great preacher c.h spurgeon said If you would sum up the whole character of Christ in reference to ourselves, it might be gathered into this one sentence. He was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. When Jesus surveyed the crowds that followed him, remember the Sermon on the Mount started that way. This this crowd that he had just healed and delivered and touched with his power were following him, and when he turned around and saw them... He he saw their pain, and that's what made him sit down and bring the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived. The Sermon on the Mount is the result of Jesus having compassion on this crowd. He delivered them by his great compassion. When he looked out at this crowd, when he had moved among them, he saw the sick, he saw the blind, he saw the crippled, he saw the tormented, his great heart. And Jesus had a great heart. It broke for them. He delivered them by his great compassion. He had mercy and healed their diseases. He took note that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he loved them. And let me tell you something. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what does he, when he looks at us tonight, here at Turning Point, what does he see? He sees his children. He sees his redeemed. But you know what? For every pain... In every person, he is moved with compassion. He loves you tonight. His compassion is going out to you tonight. Those of you that think that God's always mad at you, you need to get over that. The blood took care of all of that. God's not mad at you anymore. Can you you say that with me? God's not mad at me anymore. He's not out to get you. He, He is out to get you blessed. He is out to get you healed. But he's not out to get you with every little mistake you make. He he is moved with compassion. And when he is moved with compassion, miracles follow that. Answers to prayer follow that. Mercy follows that. So it only follows that his children would have the same heart of mercy toward others. Blessed are the merciful, like me, for they shall obtain mercy. How many of you want some mercy? People, I've been accused, my staff accuses me of being too merciful. They do. They take me aside and they say, you ought to be tougher. You're too nice. And, and people take advantage of you. They tell me that. They say, don't let anybody come at you after services because you've got your mind on other things and they take advantage of you because you're too merciful. They said, you need to be tougher. And I said, I can't. And they said, why? And I said, because I need mercy. So even if I'm taking advantage of, and I do get taken advantage of. I usually realize it after the fact. But I do get taken advantage of. My wife is, is much tougher than me. And, and she's probably watching. And I mean that in a good way, honey. She, she just, she just, everything's it's black and white with her. If you do something wrong, you deserve the wrath of God. If you do something right, you, you deserve a double anointing. I ride in the middle, I'm merciful. I just, I hurt with people. I hurt for people. Probably because I've hurt so much myself in my life and I just hate seeing anything hurt. Okay? Now, it's said that justice is getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. Why did God do it? Because he decided to. I didn't deserve it. So justice is you getting what you deserve. Grace is when you don't get, or when you get something you didn't deserve, but mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Does that make sense? So what do you think I pray for when I ask God to help me? Do I go to God and say, hey God, I deserve justice? uh-uh. I've never prayed that prayer, give me justice. I probably wouldn't be standing here tonight. Whenever I go to God, I say, oh God, I need mercy, I need grace, I need grace, and I need mercy. The Bible says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain what? Mercy. mercy and find the grace to help us in the hour of need. I don't know anybody that prays for justice. Mercy is when somebody deserves adversity, and you decide to have mercy instead. I've noticed through the years that the more painful experiences I've gone through, the more compassionate and merciful I am towards the pain of others. I really do believe, and you may not like this statement, but I really believe that God allows his children to go through some pain so they will empathize and sympathize and have compassion and mercy on others down the road. I really do. Show me somebody that has beat cancer, and then let them get around people that have cancer. Watch them cry with them. Watch them weep with them. Watch them stay with them. Watch them support them. Show me somebody that's been through the pain of a wretched divorce. And then you get them around somebody that's going through a divorce, watch them, counsel them, reach out to them, love on them. This is why we have grief share on Thursday nights. We, we put people in charge of grief share who have hurt. And they're able to reach out to the hurting because they have hurt and God took their brokenness and he never wastes a pain. He took their brokenness and and worked it where now they are merciful and empathetic and they sympathetic and they reach out to others and weep with others weep with those that weep rejoice with those that rejoice jesus is called in scripture the man of sorrows and the one acquainted with grief we don't often think of jesus that way but he was well acquainted with grief our lord knew what pain feels like and his heart went out towards the hurting all the more. Aren't you glad that when Jesus looked at you and the mess you made of your life, I'm talking about me too, that he had compassion? You know, here I was sitting in jail. Jesus had compassion on me because I was a wreck headed straight for hell. I mean, as fast as I could get there. And he had compassion on me. Aren't you glad he had compassion on you and mercy? How many of you needed a little bit of mercy this week? Right? If I gave an altar call, come down here. We're all going to pray for justice. Do you think anybody would come down? <laughs> but when I say let's come down and pray for mercy, the, the altar fills. So blessed are the merciful, for they will reap mercy. Now, the sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, again, you can't help but see, can you, the progression of spiritual maturity from conviction of sin to salvation, from salvation to the development of the fruit of meekness, and from meekness to longing for the things of God, and from that to a heart of mercy and compassion, and now to purity of heart. Is this person growing spiritually or what? Purity of heart. How many of you have ever prayed? Honestly, tell the truth, we're in church. How many of you have ever prayed, God, give me a pure heart? The rest of you, can you come lay hands on me and I want whatever you've got if you've never needed purity of heart. I'm going to try that one more time. How many of you have ever asked God to make your heart pure? All right. Well, I have a thousand times. I guess I'm weird or something up here. Now, here's the deal. You've got to keep in mind that the heart is your center. What we call the inner man it is who you really are. Your heart. Your, your heart is your soul. It's comprised of your thoughts, your affections, and your will. The, the writer of the Proverbs knew all about the need for a healthy heart. You know, we hear a lot about keep your heart healthy, but what about your spiritual heart? Do you know how, how much that contributes to you being physically healthy? Having a healthy, pure heart, a sound heart. Now, Look what the writer of Proverbs said. Above all else, guard your affections. King James says heart. Guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because they influence the affections of your heart. The streams that flow out of your heart influence everything else in your life. Out of your heart proceed all the issues of life. Your heart is your core is it sound is it pure is it set on him where are the affections of your heart Uh, where where is is your are there any idols in your heart Uh, how what is the condition of your heart what would your heart look like on a spiritual heart monitor okay the Bible talks about many different kinds of hearts the Bible talks about lazy hearts backslidden hearts evil hearts courageous hearts, defiled hearts, good hearts, even bringing forth fruit in the kingdom. Jesus said in the book of Luke, he said, he that sowed seed on the good ground is he that goes forth with patience and a good heart and brings forth fruit. So there's a good heart, there's a fearful heart, and there's all kinds of different hearts described in the Bible. And here Jesus talks about another one. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. Now, let me make clear. He's not talking about the kind of purity the Pharisees were always focused on. What was Pharisaical purity? It was keeping your actions the way they should be. It was outward, it had nothing to do with inward. Because what did Jesus say about the inward heart of the Pharisees who were always walking around teaching the Bible and quoting scripture and going around in you know, in their pompous displays of spirituality and praying out loud so that everybody noticed them and fasting with long faces and all the things the Pharisees did. But what did Jesus say about their heart? Though they looked so good on the outside. He said, your hearts are full of dead men's bones. Your hearts are gravestones, whited sepulchers. No wonder they didn't like him. You know, Jesus was not PC. Do you know that a lot of people, I'm going to say something. I believe that a lot of churches in America, if Jesus could come right now in person, wouldn't have him. They wouldn't have him. He's too straightforward. He's too truthful. He's too unpolitically correct. Because he looks at these Pharisees and Sadducees, the teachers, the religious leaders, the, the head honchos of the temple, and said to them, the inside of you is filthy. The inside of you is like a gravestone. The inside of you is full of dead man's bones. So when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, he sure wasn't talking about them. He wasn't talking about outward show. What did Paul predict? That in the last days, false Christians would have a form of godliness, but inwardly they would deny the power. They would have outward form, but inward evil. So what Jesus was always after was a heart that was right. A heart that was sound. A heart that was pure. So he's talking about a pure heart. His definition of purity means much more than morally pure. Because when we think of a pure heart, I guarantee you, most everybody in here, when I read that, blessed are the pure in heart, you immediately thought of immorality. Immorality sexual sin, sexual immorality, but it's way more than being without lust. That, that's not all he means. He also means a heart free of covetousness or a heart free of divided affections, a heart not captured by idols. He's pointing to a heart that is fully devoted to him, not divided, but pure. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, Colossians 3.1, set your affections on the things above and not on things of the earth, for you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So your affections ought to show it. Amen. So he's talking about that level of purity of heart, the, the fully orbed pure heart, the, the heart that is his. And you know what? You and I can't give that to him. He has to touch us by the power of the Holy Spirit and bring us to the place where we can do it. It's just that simple. Because our hearts naturally drift. But thank God, He can do it. Faithful is He who calls you who also will do it. And He that has begun a good work in you will finish it all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. Hey, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Uh, We're his work. We're not our own work. And watch this. Here's what Jesus says. Catch this now. He says, the more our hearts are utterly turned to him, the greater will be our capacity to see God in everything. Blessed are the pure in heart, they're going to see God. Now that's just not talking about what John mentioned when he said it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we do know that when he appears... We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's at the end of time. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about in the now. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will experience God everywhere they turn. I see God in everything. I'm going to tell you a secret about me. And you're going to think I'm so weird here and and maybe eccentric. And you can walk out thinking I'm eccentric. I love the Lord. You've got to love me anyway. But I don't even like to kill a cricket. I will carry a cricket outside and let him go. You don't know how many jokes the staff has made at my direction about that. Because in my office, they come in a lot. And I just pick them up and throw them outside. You say, why, Jeff? Why? Because God gave them life. And I see the creative hand of God in a cricket. I do. I mean, good grief, the little black the insect walking around is alive. He's jumping. He's flying. He's making that beautiful noise. God gave him that song. I'm serious. I just don't like killing anything. I've gotten so soft-hearted in my older age. I, just, I need to be tougher. I just don't know how to get there. Okay? Now, now watch this. He, he says, the more our hearts are His... And we are undivided in our, in our affection towards him. We see God in everything. They shall see God. So I look at the stars, I see God. I watch the birds flying through the air, I see God. I see God in my dogs. Created, He created them. They're not God to me. Don't go out <laughs> here and lie. I said, I see that God made them. He made them. He made everything. So everywhere I look, I see God. Now, I didn't used to think that way. But I sure like it because it's true. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. David was seeing God in everything too. Day to day, they utter speech. Night after night, they show knowledge. They teach of the glory of God. The more sanctified our life is, the greater the fellowship with Him we will enjoy. We will see God. How many of you in here want to see God? All right, now, the the, the, the more He has our heart, and He's got to get us there, then the more we're going to see Him everywhere we look. Are you all blessed so far tonight? All right, now. Next, we come to the person Jesus called a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, here's the deal. We can never become peacemakers until we ourselves have peace on the inside. You know why? Because you can't give what you don't have. So, blessed are the peacemakers. How does somebody become a peacemaker? They first have to be somebody who has made peace with God. Because God is a God of peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. So only Jesus can give us peace with God. But once he does bring peace between us and God, and as a result, peace to our own souls, we naturally become peacemakers. Peacemakers. A peacemaker is the opposite of the person who sows discord. There are people, church, who thrive on disrupting peace you know why because they don't have any peace they only have turmoil on the inside and you're you're going to export what is in you you can't export what's not in you you're going to export you're going to exude what is in you that's why christ in you is the hope of glory because when christ is in you you're going to export the glory of god And this is the problem with our world today. Why is our world in such a mess? War, terrorism, hatred, racial conflicts, rampant violence are all the result of a world separated from God. So they're in turmoil. They have no peace. All they can export is a soul in conflict. David experienced this. He said, I'm for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. You ever experienced that? You want peace, but you got people that only want war. The peacemaker strives for unity among the brethren. The peacemaker recoils at dissension and division. It's at the very heart of God to bring peace where chaos once reigned. Have you ever seen a family transformed when Jesus came into that family? They were. Lo- We've got a family that's been coming. I told you about them. I can't tell you the change we've seen. This man that I ran into in the bookstore a number of weeks ago, totally providentially, I was in my office, and and I had a brain cramp. I was studying, and I said, i got to get up and walk around. I'm going to go into the bookstore. I thought it was my idea. <laughs> I was going to go in there and look around. But I went, and here's this man standing there. And I said, hey, how you doing, and said hello to the... the the, uh, one of our staff that was showing him around, he was looking for a Bible. He said, "Are you Jeff Wickwire? I listen to you on the radio. I can't tell you how much you blessed me on the radio." And he said, "I came here to buy a Bible." And I, for my son, I said, "Great, So good to meet you." Shook his hand and I walked out. Well, I went down to Valerie's office. We're talking in, me and Valerie are talking in the office. Her door has this great big window, and he goes walking by. And um, looks in and sees me. So I threw the door open and asked him to come in. I said, hey, this is my executive assistant, Valerie. And shook hands and he said, well, I found a Bible. I said, that's great. And he starts weeping. This big manly man. Big truck driver manly man. By the way, that species is on the decline. But that's another night. And... And so I said, I said, what's wrong? He said, my son, my son tried to kill himself last week. And just a couple of months ago, or last Christmas, he said, last Christmas, I lost my wife to cancer and now my son almost succeeded in killing himself. And he said, I just don't know what to do. And this big man just began to sob. So I said, let's pray. So we took his hands, we prayed. And I said, listen, I said, uh, He had told me, he had mentioned, I'd I'd like to be water baptized. So I said, we're water baptizing this Sunday, so I invite you to come. And why don't you invite your son? Oh, he won't come. Well, invite him anyway. Let's just pray he comes. Invite your son. So he says, all right, I'll invite him. Well, that Sunday, I looked up on the screen when they were baptizing people, and I see him, I see his daughter, I see his son, I see his son's wife. They're all getting water baptized. Now, now let me tell you what. Now, they have become front row Christians. Now, let me tell you, that takes guts. There are a lot of people that love the Lord. They won't get on the front row. I don't know what it is. They think I might spray. I don't know what it is. But they won't get on the front row. And I call the front row close to the spout where the glory comes out. But they won't get on the... But this whole family... now, Now, the boy who tried to commit suicide's wife, came up to me last Sunday, weeping. She said, I cannot tell you what Jesus has done in our home. Weeping. Now, see, Jesus brings peace. The true Christian... Now, i got to point this out. It's important to remember that the peacemaker... Jesus is talking about, will not sacrifice truth for peace. This is the pressure on churches now. And so I got to balance this out about peacemakers. I got to balance this out. The true Christian peacemaker will never lay aside scriptural truth in order to make a treaty with the world. Now, there are whole denominations doing that. Whole denominations are selling out, for instance, to the gay marriage thing. They're just saying, well, you know what, um, uh, we're just going to go along with this and we're not going to cause a fuss because Jesus loves everybody. Well, he does. Sure he does. But, but listen, Amen. love doesn't trump truth. Amen. It, because once you water down truth, you're not loving. Are you with me? See, it's, oh, I love my child. They're on pot and they're on speed, but you know what? Let them go because I love them. No, you're going to whoop their hide (laughs) if they're whoopable. And you are not going to go, well, I love you so much, so I'll just go on and do all the drugs you want. No, because love doesn't trump truth. If you water down truth, you are compromising the real meaning of love. So, I want to just make it clear that, that if you love people, you will tell them the truth. Did Jesus not do that? You're full of dead man's bones. You're like whited sepulchers. You're going straight to hell. That was Jesus. Where the worm doesn't die. He told the truth. Well, the pressure on churches today is to not tell the truth for the sake of love. And it's a trap and it's wrong. Hebrews says, we're to make every effort, I'm quoting Hebrews, quote, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. But Paul the apostle also let us know that that won't always be possible. Some people are just ornery. They're not going to make peace. Paul said, if possible, well, that tells you where he's going. If possible, as far as depends on you, live in peace with all men. The idea here is that You're not always going to succeed. I have approached people to be at peace with them, and they didn't want it. In my lifetime, I have. They didn't want peace. They didn't want reconciliation. They didn't want healing. They didn't want restoration. They didn't want it. I tried to be a peacemaker, but they didn't want it, flat out. Well, what do you do? You walk away and you give it to God, and you say, I tried. I tried to be the peacemaker. Now it's on them. The promise of the Lord is that heaven itself will call the peacemaker sons of God. The person Jesus is pointing out has been to the cross. They've experienced conversion by being born again. They've been growing in the fruits of the spirit like meekness and mercy and hunger for spiritual truth. And the natural outworking of this is that they bring peace wherever they can. Here's what the peacemaker does. Their message to those in conflict is to be forgiving. To overlook offenses. Hey, overlook this offense. Come on, overlook it. You can overlook this. Give it to Jesus and overlook it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Don't live on Petty Street. I'm so tired of people being offended. Our whole country's offended. Our nation's, our nation's become a nation of babies because of political correctness. You offended me. I'm offended. Will go get over it. Come on. You poor little baby. That's what I mean. Men are, men are passing away. Now they're a bunch of crybabies. You have, you have boys in male men bodies. You have girls in fully grown women bodies. If you're always walking around offended, Lord. Stop it. It drives me nuts. I can't even listen to the news anymore. Everybody's offended. You looked at me uh, like you shouldn't have looked at me. I, there is a guy in China. I read about him today. He is suing a TV, no, a movie producer because one of the actresses looked through the screen at him too strongly. And I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't win because we are in Looney land, everybody. Let me tell you, up is down and down is up and bad is r- right and right is wrong and wrong is right and remember that song, they're coming to take me away, aha, they're coming to, to the funny farm. <laughs> well, sometimes, really, look around you, look at what has happened when we threw out the word of God and political correctness took over, we gave up a great philosophy and worldview for a crazy philosophy and worldview. The peacemaker will encourage people to go find ultimate peace with Jesus Christ. It only makes sense that the very next beatitude, the last one, deals with persecution. And I'm going to close with this. When a person has grown spiritually to the place of fruitfulness, and is carrying the message of Christ into a warring, hateful world, being a peacemaker, having mercy, uh, talking about Jesus all the time, they're going to experience persecution. Listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the last beatitude. Blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Bible is very, very clear, church, about the likelihood of persecution. And I really want to burrow in right here and close strongly with this, not only for us here but for the radio audience and everybody watching by streaming video because we need to understand persecution is rising in the West. I don't want to see you shocked when you get persecuted. Listen to what Paul wrote. Indeed, all who are determined to live a devoted and godly life in christ jesus will meet with persecution will be made to suffer because of their religious stand all who choose to follow jesus and aren't ashamed to tell it are going to experience persecution that's a promise i don't want to claim but it's true listen to what jesus said about this if you were of the world the world would love its own but because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world. I took you from one kingdom and put you into another. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know the one who sent me. When I first began preaching, I'm going to tell you, there was a little bit of persecution around. And I was very vocal with Jesus, very vocal. People would make fun, they would ridicule you, you'd become the brunt of jokes sometimes. But never, rarely did you ever experience outright hostility and hatred coming at you because you were a Christian. It was kind of tongue-in-cheek, oh yeah, yeah, they're one of them. And it was this brush-off kind of thing. But no more. Listen to me, no more. Something has changed in America and it's continuing to do so. Now there is a genuine, a genuine and growing hatred for anything Christian. Now we know why. Jesus said they love the darkness more than the light. This is the condemnation. Light came into the world and the world loved the darkness more than the light. So when you full of jesus walking in mercy and hungering for truth and displaying the fruits of the spirit and talking about him you're a light that walks into a room and they don't like light you see it on the networks. you see it on cable you see it in books you see it in news stories In successful persecutions, or rather prosecutions in court against believers whose only crime was to exercise their religious rights, can you imagine losing your entire livelihood, your business, because you wouldn't bake a gay wedding cake? You lose your whole livelihood, and you're fined excessively on top of that? Of course, overseas, Christian persecution is resulting in constant martyrdoms at the hands of terror groups like ISIS. Anti-Christian sentiment is sweeping the globe. It's estimated that since Jesus walked the earth, there have been 70 million martyrdoms. The mother load of those martyrdoms have taken place, guess when? The 20th and 21st centuries at the hands of communism, Islam, and Marxism, where literally millions of believers have been killed for their faith in the Soviet Union, in China, Pol Pot, all these various communist Marxist regimes, but now, today, the martyrdom rate has vastly increased under Muslim terrorist networks. And what many don't want to admit is that the killing of Christians by radical Islam is explicitly and repeatedly commanded by Mohammed to his followers. What bugs me drives me nuts that's another thing is when politicians won't tell the truth it's right there in the quran it's right there well i can't figure out why this is happening although those aren't real uh that's not real islam it's the islam that's revealed in the quran now do do all muslims kill of course they don't but listen of all the terrorist attacks in the world Aren't most terrorists Muslims? And where are they getting it? Because their founder told them to kill infidels, Christians, and Jews. It's right there. But we're just terrified to say it. Especially the White House. Now, Jesus knew that persecution was coming to those who followed him. And it did. All the apostles but one were martyred. For the first three centuries, following Jesus' return to heaven, around 54 Roman emperors ruled, with around 12 of them, bringing brutal persecution against the church, like Nero, Caligula, others. Tremendous persecution came later at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church, and then following the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle uh, Middle Ages, came Islam in the Middle Ages and went on a sweeping worldwide, European-wide assault against Christians, among others. So knowing that it was coming, Jesus spent more words on the last beatitude than any of the others. He went on to say, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you. And say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Then he said, Be happy about it. <laughs> Try that. You just found out that somebody lied about you or said some horrible thing against you, hurt your reputation, maybe your income, maybe your livelihood. How do you get happy about that? He said, Be happy about it, be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Now, here's what Jesus was doing: He's turning our focus from pain to promise. That's what Jesus did. It's the way He lived. It says, "For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross." How did He? How did He do that? Hanging on that cross, in the agony that He was in, how did He do it? How did He endure it? He was looking beyond the cross to the resurrection and His exaltation. And his lordship over the entire universe and all the souls, his blood would redeem. So he looked beyond the pain to the promise. Here's what Jesus is telling us to do. Who for the, he, says, um, he says, look beyond the pain of persecution to the promise of coming glory. That's what you do. So you go, yeah, they lied about me, but oh, but I'm looking beyond. They lied about me, but he knows all about that lie. The Lord is my defender. He is my vindicator. He is my judge. And and so I'm just going to look to the promise. He told me that if I got persecuted because of the gospel, I'm going to have a great reward on the other side. So I'm going to look at the promise and not the pain. That's the way he taught us to live. Let's stand together, can we?